we stand on the unceded lands of the Kuli Nation. We acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples, custodians of the lands on which we work, and we pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Because we African something, when we put requests out to the event, it was something African, people had their doubts about it. Mm. I remember we did the Yaraville Festival. It was a hustle for us to get into that festival. And where the festival organizers put us, if you know where the Yaraville train station is, yeah. that's exactly where they did that festival. Yeah. When you get off the train station, there is a public toilet block there. <laughs> that's exactly where they put us. You know, I have never been able to forgive them for that because they put our food store right in front of the toilet block and we didn't find out until we got there. Welcome back to Curiosity Complex where we are still continuing with uh, Nice Black Aussies, our theme examining diversity in Melbourne by concentrating on Africans. My name is Chris, and for a quick recap of the last episode, we looked at African drumming, which is a massive cultural artifact at the festival and also in many other arenas of ordinary lives of Australians. Schools, corporations, organizations, retreats, all these use African drumming to foster team spirit, for instance. Well, now we're going to shift our focus to another culture immersion, which is African cuisines. Chapter 4. So in one of the earlier episodes, we came across Dean, who is one of the festival goers and Dean offered his opinion on diversity and inclusion. Well, let's play it back. And I think my view is that any culture, my view at, at the moment, there's positive things and there's negative things. Yeah. I think it doesn't matter what culture you look at. Yeah. I feel you're going to find something that's very positive, but you're also going to find something that maybe is not so positive. Correct. You know, and uh, and so yeah. So well, the relevance of that yeah. is that you know I, I do think all the new immigrant cultures that come here there's going to be some probably going to be this something that's not so great maybe yeah, yeah. but there's also going to be something that's amazing Correct. and fantastic Correct. and so you know we can embrace and, and celebrate you know, yeah. some of those some of those things yeah is there a way that that process can be sped up i think you know it does seem to happen over a few generations yes like with the italians and and so on and now maybe with vietnamese too mm. they've mm. been here a few decades mm. um and i'm sure it maybe hasn't quite happened yet with sudanese but i'm sure it'll happen probably if you know might take a, a decade yeah. or two, or yeah. who knows? Yeah. You know? yeah, or even Somalis. Like I think Somali now, the, mm. there's Somali restaurants. A uh, few, like in uh, where is it, Kensington? You know, mm. there's Somali. Re there's like a street with like full of Somali restaurants, mm. and mm. I think it's starting right. to become it's starting to become a bit of a thing. I think uh, the people who know about it, yeah, you know, because uh, I used to live near there, yeah. and you know, you used to go there, and it was all, all some only Somalis would eat in this. But then over time, you notice, you know. White faces, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. people start to appreciate it, yeah, and like yeah, it. yeah. In a real world illustration of 
placing a cart ahead of the horse. Melbourne in 1949 won the bid to host the 1956 Summer Olympics. And at the time, its white Australia policy was still some 25 years away from its death. And therefore, it would seem unimaginable that a country favoring only whites to cross into its borders would think of hosting the Olympics as a good idea. For example, leaving it to the very last minute, planners were surprised to find that the city wasn't equipped with an array of restaurants catering for international cuisines. So the scramble began to recruit chefs internationally that could change the city's image. Meanwhile, the demographics were starting to diffuse to include people other than white. Along the river terrace and near the Ghanaian dramas is where the food kiosks are situated. Clouds of smoked spices and herbs from roasting meats dissolved into throngs of people and passers-by. Hundreds upon hundreds of people were streaming towards Night Noodle Market, a major culinary festival being held at a nearby park. They had to weave their way past the African food stalls, which presented a golden opportunity for any of the African food vendors to market their food to a wide-ranging, curious traffic. Now, because Africa has thousands of ethnic groups, one can reasonably expect just as many cuisines. Foreign recipes are increasingly taking over the continent's feeding habits. And so as elders back in Africa strive to preserve some of these cuisines, instructing younger generations to employ recipes, it is fair to say that some of these recipes are evolving, adapting their cuisines to those of other cultures. That's the sound of four ladies moving about in a stall like bees in a hive, with a bank of deep fryers lined up across the stalls with samosas, mandazis, and cassava frying. In a workspace corner, two frying pans warming chapatis, a flat bread, unleavened and made from whole wheat prepared with a splashing of cooking oil making it snackable easily on its own with little hydration to chase with. Rather than selling them as is, chapatis are now used to wrap an omelette with sliced onions, tomatoes, cabbages, all packed into rolled eggs. This street food item is called Rolex, perhaps derived from rolled eggs. Every several minutes, the crispy brown mandazis cassava, samosas are retrieved from the fryer into a chafing dish. According to the menu, if you opted for a sit-down meal as opposed to the snacks, fried bins of fried liver would be served atop rice pulao. Samosas, chapatis and pulao rice are dishes you can expect in Kenya, Tanzania and Uganda. When many Indians migrated to the region, for commerce, 
along with establishing citizenship, they also sought their culture, handing down recipes to their African servants who worked as chefs, cleaners, or chamber boys, any of whom would have been known as boys, usually orbiting inside the compounds of their Indian bosses, staying in quarters detached from the main house, referred to as boys' quarters. This inequality, obscuring black Africans, spread eventually leading to frictions between Indians and the black Africans. Can you repeat your question? Yes, with, with pleasure. When dictatorships emerged, these divisions were ripe for exploitative politics. We have seen uh, and heard stories, many of them, which are all validated, of thousands and tens of thousands of Asians being evicted from your country, you took their property, you didn't pay them. Is that your wave of the future? Is that all the love you're mentioning all this time? I think you believe in rumors. Under some of this picture, it is not might be from Uganda. I think uh, the people whom I sent away of the British citizens, uh, they were controlling 99 economy of Uganda all business, industries, and everything. And uh, on top of that, I requested them when I took over in 1971. I asked them to apply for Uganda citizenship. They refused. And they control 99% of the economy. And the whole money they are getting, they don't bank this money in Uganda. The bank this money outside Uganda. And I am sure if they were still up to now, Uganda could have been bankrupt completely. The only opportunity was to take that decision for the interest of the people of Uganda. And then uh, I took that decision, but I said that I will pay the compensation under which I have written to the all government uh, concerned, and I have also written to India, which they have got a few Indians, I'm sure uh, the, the delegation will be coming from India um, to discuss with the government of Uganda, and uh, we shall pay. Because Asians had no goodwill planted amongst black Africans, when Indians sought cover or safe passage during the expulsion of Asians from Uganda in the 70s, the black Africans ignored them, taking possessions of the properties and businesses left behind. Lacking the experience of running these storefronts, most of them fell into disrepair. Fifty years on, both sides have since learned to live with one another in dignity and cultures are shared peaceably, not shoved.
How come you're not serving up mbombo as listed on the menu? I said in Luganda to one of the Ugandan ladies, Olivia, after placing my order for fried cassava. Mpombo are the most decadent food preparation there is in the Buganda tribe. Matriarchs pummel into their daughters from a very young age what an honor it would be for a woman to attain validation of a well-prepared mpombo. For a start, the dishes are extremely rare, mostly reserved for special occasions like weddings, which even makes learning or practicing even harder to come by. Mpombos comprise of meats or sometimes veggies or peanut soup which are each prepped with little to no spices. They are wrapped in separate banana leaf pouches shaped like money bag emojis and bundled into a large heap in a deep pan. Cuttings of banana leaf stems lay at the bottom of that pan so that just the moisture of the simmering water will reach the pouches. The cooking lasts for hours because, well, the aim is to avoid contents from boiling, which would puncture the pouches. Enzymes from the banana leaves tenderize the dishes and imbue the contents with aroma and flavor. One other item that ought to make it on the menu should be roasted grasshoppers or bush crickets. Grasshoppers are a staple ingredient in Uganda. In every corner of the capital, vendors are busy at work. In baskets and on newspaper spreads on the ground, they're selling grasshoppers to passers-by. It's hard to put a taste to it. It's just, it has a good feel to the mouth. Kind of like fox scratches, you know? The skin of a pig is fried very well. The crunchy taste, that's what you get. Traditional dishes which require slow and meticulous preparation increasingly are abandoned for quick meals. One theory might be that the it takes a village modality has been decimated. And with that, the helping hands from neighbors and family friends went away, therefore putting more pressure on the traditional family roles to dismantle. You know, our brand is Zuya African Barbecue. This is Leo, who owns Zuya African Barbecue. You know, um, I grew up in a very, very big family. Mm -hmm. uh, when I say big family, I mean like many siblings. So I'm one of nine siblings, and I am the eighth, the eighth sibling among the nine. So, um, so we have uh, the eldest, who is a, a woman. Yeah and uh, the second who is a male, and then the third who is a woman, and the rest of us boys. Mm. Growing, in our, growing up in Africa, you know, parents, they have to go and do farming or they do business, whatever they do. We basically had to feed ourselves somehow. Right. Not feeding ourselves because the parents were negligent was just the culture. So I go to school, I come back from school, and mom is going to the farm to do some farming and that. Well, 
if you can sit and wait for mom to come back, you don't know what time mom's gonna <laughs> come back. Yeah. Mom's gonna come back and mom's gonna, you know, come back and try to prepare food. And so if you have to sit and wait for mom to come back and prepare the food, you would bloody starve. So it became a thing where we come back from school, you know what, you want to find a way to cook. Mm. And that's how we learn how to cook. That's how we learn how to cook pretty much. So mom is not handing down a recipe necessarily, you just winging it? Well, a lot of it we learn from mom. Mm. We, we, a lot of it we learn from mom, just pretty much. Like how, mom. Yeah, how yeah. mom, she does it. I will ask the question, how do you do it? So when she's not there, we try to replicate it. We try to replicate what she does. Right. So that's how my cooking thing came all about. As more women were left with little time for domestic chores in favor of corporate roles or juggling their businesses, it is more practical to opt for snacks and sandwiches making the rolled omelette eggs with vegetables wrapped in a chapati, a win-win. Now, flatbreads have been an easy way to shovel food into human mouths since the first century BC. Take, for instance, in the Bible where herbs and roasted meat are wrapped into unleavened bread for Jewish feasts to commemorate bitterness of slavery and the speediness with which Israelites fled Egypt. The downside of African cuisines moving to speedier options is that that also uproots the sense of communion and social interactions that were maintained from eating out of a communal dish sitting down on the floor. From the Ugandan stall, I walked westward along the river terrace, mostly lined with West African street food stalls. Some of the food items I was looking forward to and yet were absent were pepper soup, a goat stew known for its habanero pepper heat, moyo, pounded yam, a tasteless doughy starch, which is best served with a goosey soup stewed meat such as beef, or goat made with fish stock, tofu, and vegetables. Instead, what was available included cassava, fried plantain, and jollof rice, a dish with contested origins to a point that one of the festival shows included a cook-off competition named Jollof Wars, pitting jollof chefs from different regions of West Africa. Yeah, um, Zuya, how we got into it? You know, being a migrant from, you know, from Africa, West mm. Africa, Cameroon, migrating into Australia at a very young age was all about the Australian dream. And uh, of course, growing up in Africa, you know, you're encouraged by parents to go to school, get a degree, get a job with the government. You wear suit and tie, right. you know, get married, form a family, and yes, you've made it. Um, it was like, all right, let's pursue that. One of the things that I realized within the corporate space of Australia is that it was very, very sensitive. It was too diplomatic. You know, you deal with people, so you got to watch how you speak. You got to watch what you say, how you say it. Mm -hmm. 
Now, and uh, having grown up in Africa, um, I mean, we, we speak freely, but in Australia, in that corporate environment, when you speak freely, what do you think you're speaking freely? Mm. Actually, will come across as very, very offensive to some people. Mm. And it became a thing where, you know, the corporate space became like, a, you know, walking on needles. Mm. So just depending on how hard you put your food, right. the needle will prick you and all that sort of stuff. Right. I was like, nah, 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 that's right. not my nature. I have to move out of this space. Mm. When I moved out of this space, I literally went into construction. Now I actually realized that there was more out there than being stuck in a corporate space. So... That's not your training though, is it? It wasn't my training. Yeah. It wasn't my training. So... the so construction just walk into construction and get, and get going? Um, yes and no. Yeah. Yes and no, depending how you get in. I didn't get in becoming like a project manager. That's what I was going to ask. I got in <laughs> to the construction as a builder's laborer. Right. That's how I got in. I got into an interview and I was interviewed by the uh, uh, general manager or director of this business in person. It wasn't just HR interview, but it was actually a general manager who, who, who interviewed me. So they got me in, they gave me an opportunity. So when I got into the construction, it was a commercial construction company. Mm -hmm. So what well, the company I got in that time was called uh, uh, Atco Constructions, mm -hmm. um, you know, which is uh, it's, it's, it's a significantly big company, you know, and the likes of Multiplex, ProBuild, all that sort of stuff. Right. Very big company. Right. So being a builder's laborer was sort of an eye-opener for me because I have that sort of attitude of, you know, you know, doing things, getting my hands dirty. Mm. I, I don't complain or I, uh, you know, I don't complain about, oh, you know, the, I cannot get into this field. In fact, I enjoyed it. Because working out there was a completely different space as opposed to working within a corporate space. This is where Zuya gets born. So after a few years working in the construction industry and I went through a separation, I basically didn't get to see my daughter. So my daughter back then was only about three, three, just under three and a half. And uh, the excuse her mom gave me for not wanting me to see my daughter was, why would you care about spending much time about your daughter now? when all the time, all you've always focused on was just work, 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 work. And that to me was where um, everything sort of turned around. Respect to women, you know, you can never win with women. Even my daughter, I've got a, my youngest is six years old and you just cannot win an argument with her. <laughs> so <laughs> I said to myself, I'm like, well, look, there's no need for me fighting. She said it, you know, I worked. But in my head when I worked, I was working to make a living for all of us. And that's what I did, you know, because she never worked. I made sure I put the food on the table, I did everything. But again, I didn't realize that, you know, the culture that I grew up in, where we grew up in a culture where men are supposed to be the breadwinner for the family, mm. which is what I did happily for several years. Mm. And I still do that until today. 
as opposed to the culture in which we live in, it's not all about being a breadwinner for the family. So at this point, I sort of decided, all right, I'm just going to digest what's happened and then learn to move on from that, but I'm going to try to make it better for my next one if I'm lucky to get the next one. Fast forward, I was blessed to meet my lovely wife, who is now we're now married for 11 years, 10 years, 10, 11 years now. Um, when I met her, I do not want to, you know, live this life where I'll keep getting separated or divorced and then back into it. So I thought, all right, from the last one, I'm going to learn to keep like a healthy work and family life balance. So. All those years, you know, the early years in construction with, you know, working ridiculous hours and that, um, obviously I missed out on a lot of things, right. um, not catching up with friends, pretty much almost lost all my friends because, you know, I wasn't getting involved with anything. We worked six, seven days a week, like, you know, 80 to 100 hours a week, that sort of stuff. Um, so didn't um, participate in did birthday parties and whatnot, Chris, yeah. all those sort of things, didn't participate in them. So when I met my wife now, I was like, this has to change somehow. It became a thing where I had one day of week that I was like, nah, it doesn't matter what it is, I'm not gonna work on this diet. <laughs> and this is when I started cooking barbecues. So it became a thing where every Sunday um, I would cook barbecue. And the reason why I did that was because I only had that one day a week and I could not potentially, for that one day a week, you know, attend this event, attend that one, attend that one. I was again lucky that the few friends that I had left at that time, everyone was happy to congregate at mine because I always make it a very, very meaningful one. So I'll get like, like goats or lambs, a few of them, a couple of them, and just chuck them on the barbie and we there, you know. Having some barbecues and having some drinks and talking, music, it was fun. And I realized that it became a thing that everyone looked forward to it. So we had that opportunity now to catch up with adults, you know, and then let the kids mingle and apply. Again. And who's picking up the tab every time you do this kind of... Like, I no. did it. <laughs> you did pick up the tab. I did it. Right. I happily did it. Right. I did it. And I never regretted any minute or any second of doing that. Because? Because that was a way for me to make amends for having been, been present for all those years because I was just focused on working. Mm. But then I realized that when I went through a separation, does that working alone actually sort of like, you know, you need to shoot yourself in the food. So this was my way of trying to get family, uh, you know, like a, a healthy balance between right. work and, and family pretty much. Making a man, yeah. So I did it. Yeah. Again, our African culture, you it know. Is, it is. I mean, I've got friends from this part of the world, yeah. you know, my, let me call my Aussie friends, you yeah. know who found it very strange that they want to come and, oh, do you want, I'm like, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with, yeah. with us Africans, when we say come, yeah. we mean come. 
and let's share it together. Let's yeah. enjoy it together. Yeah. We don't expect you to bring your VBBA or whatever. <laughs> if your choice is VB, of course, yeah. I'll make sure that it's VB available. Just bring yourself your empty stomach mm. and then come and, right. and, and let's share. That was the attitude that we had. Now, a visitor to many corners of Africa will recount stories where your host displays an unsparing generosity and hospitality. Fresh and ripest fruits, outsides veggies, chickens and goats, which would normally be set aside for ceremonial luncheons, are amongst those items prepared for the visitor. The generosity materializing at mealtimes while dining usually on the floor is an accounting process that starts from the slaughterhouse. A rough head count of who will be dining will determine how the bird is sectioned up way before cooking preparations. For instance, the gizzard would be preserved for the breadwinner or the elder, and drumsticks are preserved for the visitor and so on. You always have to anticipate for walking guests as well, which is why, as a cook, you prepare more food than is required. In Senegal, the term for this is teranga, loosely translates to a blend of hospitality, respect, community and solidarity a host extends to their guests through sharing food. But frankly, there's also something else at work here. When you see a host preparing more food than is required and also using the freshest and ripest foods, the slaughtered goats, the slaughtered cows for your guest. It probably has to do with the fact that Africans in Africa, the traditional values are that you shared what you had because you wouldn't be able to preserve it anyways, because you lacked the ability to preserve it. But by sharing it with people outside of your immediate family, it would mean that you're extending that goodwill such that in the future, when, let's say, they get their own harvest, they would reciprocate that goodwill. So let's say you have a large cow and you have a family of five, you're not going to be able to preserve that slaughter, the meat from the cow. So the wise thing for you to do is to probably give most of that away to your neighbors, to your family, friends, to even your distant neighbors, so that in the future, let's say, when they have a fresh harvest of corn, bananas, vegetables, they would remember the meat that they were given. And because they themselves are unable to preserve those large amounts of their harvest, it will be practical for them to extend that goodwill and provide you with some of those veggies. Anyway, I think I believe that that's the tradition. Whether we're overanalyzing that or not, it, it is still a good thing to know that if you have more than you have, it makes sense to give some of that away as a way of accruing goodwill for your future from those neighbors as well as inviting them for dinner, which is why you'll prepare more food than is required in case for those walk-in guests. 
it got interesting now I, I have a few or i had a few neighbors back then the white guys and because me i like to know people around me right. i got very close with these my neighbors yeah. and of course we didn't share this good food just to ourselves i invited my neighbors come on let's share these things guys yeah. and my neighbors they went nuts for it <laughs> i sort of believe in what people have to say mm. sometimes depending mm. on what they say right. but if unrelated people say similar thing to you over and over there's definitely something in it and then one of my neighbor his name is grant he said to me leo you've been cooking this meat for years and you do it all alone how about you make one of these drums for me so that we cook and we take turns so you cook this week and i cook next week and it became a thing now where we gather at mine we cook this week, next week, we had his, we cook. Exactly the same thing. Now, when we got to Grant and we cook, obviously, his own friends, they heard about it, and it became a very big thing. Mm. <laughs> it became a really big thing. Right. Big. What year are we talking? Uh, this is about 2000. Uh, we started this thing, would have been 2013. Mm. So off the jump, you're already big. Pretty much, just cooking at home. The push of doing business became more and more apparent. We had uh, uh, some great reviews uh, because our sources, I just invented these things, you know, and then they worked. And we had some amazing reviews and people were like, we want this, we want this, we want this. <laughs> so it was the demand of the people. And then we sat back now and I said to, my crew, you know, demand for this thing is getting interesting. How about we find a way to, you know, to make these things to be more regular, more frequent. So that was like end of that year, 2015, mm -hmm. 2016. We started trying to look for other events that we could attend. But because um, it's, you know, because we're African something, mm. When we put requests out to the event, it was something African, mm. and people had their doubts about it. Mm. I remember we did the Yaraville Festival, I think it was uh, in 2017. Mm -hmm. We did the Yaraville Festival. It was a hustle for us to get into that festival. And where the festival organizers put us, if you know where the Yaraville, if you know where Yaraville train station is, yeah. that's exactly where they did that festival. Yeah. When you get off the train station, there is a public toilet block there. <laughs> that's exactly where they put us. You know, I have never been able to forgive them for that. Yeah. Because they put our food store right in front of the toilet block. Yeah. And we didn't find out until we got there. And when we got there, we complained about it. They didn't say nothing. Like, they're just one of the most difficult people. And we never did any event with them from that day until today. Because of that particular How did that go, though? The, 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 the response in that event was, um, it was a bit mixed, you know? Mm. It was mixed because, number one, our location, right. it was in front of the public toilet, right. not your best location to put food. Yeah. So I don't know how the council would have let them do that. Mm. And more so, not just the location, we had an inspector from the Maribyrnong Council mm. who we did find that he had some racial issues. Mm and he was inspecting us every five minutes, which created a lot of inconveniences, even with us doing our business. So we've never ever gone back to that event after that. <laughs>
That was 2017. We never ever gone back there up till this day. We've never even expressed interest. How does that rank in terms of the frustrations that the business has had um, with, with community-wise, basically? Look, I think um, that was really one of the worst experiences we had. And surprisingly enough, it was experience we come from an area that is supposed to be one of the most multicultural areas in Melbourne, if we can use that word. Uh, West, you know, Footscray, Yarraview, it's one of the biggest multicultural space, but we cop that there, which uh, I didn't take that down well up till this day. Subsequent applications that we put in for other events, there was always the knockbacks, there was the knockbacks, Probably they weren't sure who we were, yeah. or I don't know if it was because... I mean, because today we've become very famous, we don't really apply for events anymore. Mm -hmm. People invite they us to events. They accommodate you. Yes. <laughs> and they make... I was giving you shit about that. Yes. That. Anyways, go yeah. So we, we, we hardly apply for events. We get the calls mm. all the time. Mm. Can you please come to this event? So it's now that we're actually saying, okay, back then, people were actually knocking us back maybe because they, you know, they had their own thing. I remember we did an event, um, a festival. It was one of the food and wine festivals that was in uh, Cows. You know where Cows is? Yeah. That's past uh, Phillips Island. All right, yeah. So past Phillips Island, went all the way to the water. It's called Cows, mm. C-O-W-E-S. That's mm. the name of that area. We went to that event as soon as we set our grills, got the suya smoke going, and it went nuts. Right. And it's... I didn't particularly enjoy the experience that other vendors didn't really sell until we sold out. Mm. But it was just the excitement of people mm. when they saw what we had in offer. They went crazy and they loved it. And we, of course, we enjoy serving these people. And at the end of the event, the organizers, there were two ladies, I can't remember what their names were. They basically walked to us and tell us that you're never coming back here because of the interest that they saw. Yeah, it was, we were all like, ooh. So there was public beings. I mean, we paid to attend. I mean, we paid to attend events. Right. So they were so nasty, so much so that they were like, take your rubbish with you, all that sort of stuff. Right. I mean, it's a public event where right. there's beans, public beans and all that right. stuff. Right. I mean, we do the right thing, putting our beans in the bags. She said, take your, you know, they were just, what Nasty. Mm. It could have been 18 or 19. I can't remember one of those. Yeah. Um, but those are some of the negatives. Yeah. But then, um, yeah, so slowly we build and uh, we build and kept improving, which we continue to improve until today. Mm. And uh, we did request to get into the VIG market for quite a few times. Mm. Again, I guess the VIG markets, they weren't very sure. And of course, I do respect the Vic Queen Victoria. Do they express this that they're not sure, or do you just have a s intuition that you feel like they're not sure? Look, um, again, uh, there's application process. Mm. So again, in that in these application processes, you know, they ask quite a series of questions. Mm. Again, because you may not be necessary experience yeah. in that kind of space, mm. you may not hit the oh, answers yeah. to what they expect you to hit. Yeah. And what that does, it creates the unsure situation. Yeah, yeah, it's like, oh, you know, unsure. Yeah. But again, you know, me, for example, I 
show stuff practical. Yeah. I may not be the best in writing stuff and explaining, yeah. describing stuff. Yeah. But if you give me the opportunity to showcase, to showcase yeah. I'm very sure I'm going to blow you away. Yeah. And I capitalize on that. Yeah. So it took us a while for Queen Victoria Market to give us an opportunity. Mm. And from when we stepped foot into Queen Victoria Market, yeah. man, Queen Victoria Market has been one of the greatest experience for us, working with a team of people who know what they're doing. And that has actually helped us mm. to improve in our business to the extent where we are big, we are where we are today. And we've got that reputation, which, you know, at the Queen Victoria Market and other places, you know, when walking to the market, it's not one of those things where they're worried about, you know, anything because they know, you, you know the right thing. You're going to do the right thing. And they create that safe space for you to communicate. Right. So if you think you have an issue about something, you know, it seems like you create a safe space for your kids at home. Mm. That's what they have created. Right. So the last thing they want to do is to, you know, make things difficult for you. You to not be able to communicate your frustrations or your concerns or whatever. Exactly. Hey, um, on the Queen Victoria, I actually did a funny thing. I measured how long it takes for someone to be at the end of the line to the time they come to the front of the line, from the time they order to the time they receive the food. The, I don't know whether you measure that and if you do, whether that gives you concern. Having those long queues generally is something that no one's got control of. Um, but what we've done is... You're an accountant. You can measure and say, you know what? I can bring my KPI. Yes, 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 I, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. And if you look at the setup of every other trader in the market, it's sort of the culture of the space. Right. You know, people waiting on the queue yeah. to order their food yeah. and they enjoy it. Your lines are longer yeah. though. Yes. Oh, you know, a plate of food that we sell for $20, mm. just so you know. If we want to put in all the costs associated to produce that plate of food that we sell for $20, yeah. that food will be worth That's next time as we continue with Nice Black Aussies. Nice Black Aussies is produced by myself and partly recorded at the State Library of Victoria. A partial list includes music of Alain Konku, Stina Mobi, Suku Stars, Brianna Tam, and Kanda Bongoman. You also heard the voice at the top of the show of former President Idi Amin. And a quick programming note, we will continue bringing you nice black Aussies. And the best way to know when a new episode drops is by following us on whatever platform of your choice. Mm -hmm.